section one of captain cook this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Captain Cook by Walter Besant. Chapter 1. Birth and Education, Part 1. James Cook was born in the little village of Martin in that part of Yorkshire known as Cleveland. He came into the world on the 27th day of October in the year 1728 his father an agricultural labourer removed by a single step from the lowest level is said by one writer to have been a native of northumberland and by others to have come from the village of ednam in roxburgh the birthplace of thompson the poet the village of martin presents few points of interest the cottage in which cook was born was taken down a hundred years ago and part of a great house which in its turn is now gone was built over its site the place is at present occupied by a plantation the only relic of cook's childhood is a pump called captain cook's pump constructed it is said by his father probably it was the pump in use by the tenants of the cottage the village consists of a long street of red brick houses few of them old the church was rebuilt in eighteen forty eight and most of the tombs in the churchyard are new james seems to have been the second of a large family of seven or eight or even more at a very early age he was set to work on the farm of one william walker a wealthy yeoman of martin mary walker his wife seems to have taken the trouble to teach the child his letters this is the origin of the dame school and the village dame of which so much is made in hartley's coleridge memoir mary walker lived to the age of eighty-nine dying in the year seventeen eighty nine ten years after her pupil it is hoped that this good lady knew that the lad to whom she had shown a little kindness was none other than the great sailor who filled the world with his name at the age of eight in the year seventeen thirty six the boy was removed to the village of great ayton between four and five miles south of martin here his father became hind to mr scoto then lord of the manor great ayton which boasts an illustrious roll of proprietors had passed by marriage from the colsons to the scotos it was sold early in the century to a family named richardson the word hind is generally interpreted to mean bailiff the practice in the cleveland district was then and is still for the landlord to place a man in charge of a small farm giving him the farmhouse for his residence and paying him fixed wages receiving in return the whole produce of the farm this tenant or paid labourer is called the landlord's hind doubtless this was the position held by james cook the elder at great ayton four more children at least were born to the family and four died and are buried in the churchyard here also in the year seventeen sixty eight captain cook's mother died aged sixty three happy we may hope in the knowledge that one of her sons was in command of a king's ship the village of great ayton is a much more considerable place than martin and far more interesting it lies close to the north or northwest edge of that splendid stretch of hill and moorland called the cleveland hills or the moors well known to all who love whitby and her daughters the seaside hamlets each in its glen built on the slopes of the steep hills beside the sea the cleveland hills begin close to the village of ayton 
north of it runs the long ridge of longbar and east of it rises the picturesque hill called rosebury topping a thousand feet high crowned with its conical peak of sandstone through the village runs a beck which is crossed by a wide stone bridge on the south side of the stream evidently the poorer part of the village stands the house where cook's father dwelt it is said to have been built by him when he gave up his post as hind and became a stonemason it is a stone cottage of three or four rooms with a red tiled roof and through the open door one catches a glimpse of a garden behind over the door is a stone with the initials j c g and the date seventeen fifty five if as is most probable these initials mean james cook and grace his wife the house was not built till the son was already twenty-seven years of age and long since flown from the paternal nest the father was also sixty and if he lived here must have given up his farm cook's biographers grandly tell us that the boy was placed in a day-school at ayton and educated at mr scoto's expense this seems very magnificent and truly generous on the part of mr scoto i believe that this gentleman afterwards proved cook's friend at the most important juncture in his life when a single step decided his future but upon the generosity of the education one need not insist i have seen the school it was held on the ground floor of a cottage built originally as the inscription above the lintel informs us in seventeen o four by one michael postgate it was pulled down in the year seventeen eighty four and then rebuilt the later structure was of exactly the same size as the former no doubt as village schools then were the educational advantages of great ayton were considerable and a boy attending the school from the age of eight to that of twelve may have acquired a good foundation for anything which he might subsequently be able to build upon it the school has since been refounded and endowed and new buildings have been erected for it so that it has become a very creditable school indeed the village now contains a few old houses and a good number which betoken a certain amount of comfort and wealth there is a large square with a very good inn on the other side of the brook is an irregular place surrounded by old and somewhat squalid cottages the old church has been deserted and suffered to fall into decay and a new church has been built and a new churchyard close to the old the effect is not pleasing though the mouldering church in the midst of its graves all forgotten and neglected together is not without its touch of pathos a monument stands in the churchyard erected by captain cook to the memory of his mother his father who lived to be eighty-five died at redcar on april first seventeen seventy nine where he lived with his daughter margaret who was married to a fisherman there he is described in the register of deaths as a day labourer the son of a hind of scotch descent afterwards a stonemason and of a yorkshirewoman of like position and parentage james cook had little backing from his family and his connections yet if we were to have chosen an ancestry which in those days would have given a boy the best chance of success it would have been difficult to choose a better stock on both sides on the one hand the scotch patience intelligence and industry and on the other the yorkshire independence and self-reliance add to this a quality especially essential to success in that century of endurance hard fare and continual fighting the power of contenting himself with the simplest life under the hardest conditions 
what the common sailor endured with grumbling captain cook endured with cheerfulness this also he owed as much to his parentage as to the habits of early life when the boy reached his thirteenth year and it was time to look about for him it was resolved to apprentice him to one sanderson a shopkeeper of staithes or the staithes the existence of tombstones in great ayton churchyard bearing the name of sanderson seems to explain why the boy was sent to mr sanderson of staithes perhaps he was in some way connected with the family perhaps the sanderson of staithes let the sanderson of great ayton know that he was in want of a boy certainly the two places were then as far apart and as distinct from each other as york is now from london in one the population was wholly rural and agricultural in the other it was wholly seafaring between the two villages there lay an expanse more than fifteen miles across if one wanted a village by the sea surely redcar was nearer than staithes and whitby if one wanted a great commercial centre was as near but the boy was sent to staithes he would reach it by whatever path lay across the moor probably through lofthouse sacred to the memory of a loathly worm no doubt such an apprenticeship would seem to the simple village folk a chance of a rise in the world for their boy it was indeed a chance and the lad seized upon it yet not quite as they expected along this part of the yorkshire coast from redcar round to flamborough ahead and bridlington high cliffs present their faces to the sea broken at intervals by narrow glens formed by little becks or brooks making their way to the sea in many of these glens lie nestled a village or a town whitby is such a town built in a narrow valley upon the banks of a stream robin hood's bay has such a town brunswick bay has another scarlborough is an overgrown example of this kind of fishing village the staithes is another example it is like the rest built in a narrow valley upon the banks of a little stream the valley is so narrow and so deep that the place is quite invisible whether one approaches it by the road or by the cliff one suddenly turns toward the sea by a steep and winding way and presently discerns the red roofs of the town below descending the road becomes a street narrow and of evil smell descending still further the street becomes the centre and market of the town with shops and public-houses a little farther and the beach appears high cliff on either hand the one on the north running up to a point and breaking down sheer this is called coburn nab and the other on the south called piercy nab a more rounded bluff both are of nearly the same height namely just over four hundred feet a bay is thus formed partly sheltered from the east but exposed to the north the staith is a wooden pier or sea-wall not that which was known to james cook when he became an apprentice here but one of much more recent construction piles of timber have been driven into the ground as far out to sea as possible in order to make a kind of groin and to break the force of the waves which come rolling in from the north with great strength in the bay there are dozens of boats lying moored side by side on the shore there are dozens of boats hauled up the boats in the bay are filled with nets and gear of all kinds mostly they are painted white with streaks of green blue or red among them are lying i know not if they came so far a hundred and fifty years ago the boats of penzance with their stern sails you may know them by their rig in the big smacks half a dozen men go out 
but two or three will venture out even in one of the little cobbles which are upset so easily unless dexterously managed the place appears to be prosperous though men grumble on the stave the fisher folk stand about all day long hands in pocket pipe in mouth no neapolitan could seem lazier but they are not lazy they are resting an hour after midnight they will be on board their craft outward bound for the german ocean in all weathers short of a gale and in all seasons even when the northeast wind benumbs them with its icy breath they are not lazy but ashore they love to sit and stand together all day long exchanging few words where the waves wash the beach and where they scent the fragrance of the fish lying on the shingle above the reach of high tide and where they can keep an eye upon the open and watch the ships that sail and steam past them on the horizon there is every indication of a trade by which many do live in comfort in the town the shops are conducted though doubtless on a more liberal scale precisely after the same methods as those prevalent a hundred years ago that is to say on one side of the door is the grocery department and on the other side the drapery so that those who make james cook apprentice to a draper do not lie nor do those who make him apprentice to a grocer since his master mr sanderson followed both these trades the fisherfolk of the staiths at the present day are reported to be a moral and virtuous people largely composed of temperance men they are further said to be a religious folk belonging to one or other of the many nonconformist churches represented in the place the church of england which a year or two ago had nothing in the place but an upper chamber rivalling the conventicles in ugliness is reported perhaps wrongly to have a feeble following the parish church is at hinderwell on the cliff a mile or more away and it is in its churchyard that you will find the tombs of all the master mariners of the staiths in the time when james cook was apprenticed here i suppose there were none of the dissenting chapels nonconformity was still a thing of the great towns and that such of the fisher folk as had any religion at all walked up the hill on sundays to hinderwell we may easily believe them to have been like all other fisher and sailor folk of the time a people given to much drink but never careless or reckless that kind of sailor is not common on the coast of yorkshire save in this matter of drink in which the people are now greatly reformed the place was much the same then as now the bright-eyed clear-skinned girls ran then as now lightly along the steep and narrow lanes and courts of the town carrying baskets of fish on their heads the wives sat in their porches in their sunbonnets talking and knitting the men lounged on the stave talking all day if it was fine and not too cold when it rained or snowed or when the east wind was too bitter even for their hardy frames they sat together in the bar of the cod and lobster the shoulder of mutton and the black lion drinking over a pipe of tobacco on the south side of the main street the narrow courts rose steep and confined each with its flight of steps beyond the bay under coburn nab they were building ships always one ship at least on the stocks perhaps a whaler perhaps a collier perhaps no more than a fishing smack or a cobble but all day long the cheerful hammer rang and the shipwrights went in and out among the fisher folk he who visits this quaint old yorkshire town when he stands upon the far side of the cod and lobster upon the wooden pier may in imagination rebuild a row of houses along the shore exactly similar to those which will stand upon the shore behind him 
such a row actually stood there in the year seventeen forty and among them was mr sanderson's double shop the grocery on one side and the drapery on the other under the counter let us hope that of the latter department where there would be fewer cockchafers beetles and earwigs slept the apprentice james cook all apprentices slept under the counter in those days in the morning he swept out the shop put things in their places they had not then arrived at dressing the windows this done he had his breakfast a hunch of bread a lump of fat bacon and a mug of small ale this dispatched all day long he fetched carried waited served and listened to the instructions of mr sanderson he also listened whenever he could get outside the shop to the talk of the seafaring men on the stave he heard many things strange and wonderful he heard how the men went forth at night in all weathers to catch the herring and the cod he heard how some of them had served on colliers and coasters and so knew all the ports and humours of each from whitby to wapping how some again had gone forth to the arctic seas and whalers and had met with perils many and various among the ice the bears and the great whales nay there were some who had been pressed into his majesty's service fought his majesty's battles and returned home again none the worse for their years afloat even though their backs bore marks of the captain's discipline End of section one